Hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today I'm again with Mike Newman, who's going to talk through the site planning and design exam. Uh, today we're going to demonstrate how many of the site planning and design concepts um, show up in this exam in multiple ways, and how you're going to want to um, sort of approach that knowledge differently depending on whether um, you're focused on the multiple choice exam or the vignettes. Um, so, but before we get started, uh, if you'd like to attend our next ARE live broadcast, um, where we're going to uh, discuss the transition from ARE 4 to ARE 5, um, visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register. Uh, and during the broadcast, you'll have a chance to ask questions to the group and to Mike. Um, now, if you don't know M Mike, he is an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio, and he is the instructor for Black Spectacles Online AIA ARE Prep Curriculum, uh, which if you haven't already checked out, our AIA ARE Prep Curriculum, you can head over to blackspectacles.com to watch any of the free tutorials from the courses. Um, and today we have a very special Black Spectacles promo code to share, so stay tuned to hear about, uh, to hear about that at the end of the broadcast. Um, but first, I'm going to go ahead and uh, hand it over to Mike. All right, thanks, Mark. Um, as, as you just said, uh, we're going to talk a bit about some site issues, uh, and specifically how the same set of concepts and terminology will show up in a bunch of different places. So uh, that could be uh, PPP, the, the Programming Planning and Practice exam, it could be the CDNS exam, it could be the um, uh, Building Design exam. Uh, there's a whole series of different uh, places where there's a lot of crossover. And the thing to sort of think about is how each of those has their own set of agendas, and so you have to think about the information and the question kind of in the light of that. But specifically, what we're going to be talking about today is, as Mark mentioned, uh, is the sort of difference between the multiple choice version of the way that you think about these concepts and, and terminology versus the vignette version of it. And so we're just going to run through a bunch of different issues and, and uh, some different ways of talking about these things and uh, just sort of place them into that context uh, and sort of see which, uh, which way uh, that you would, you would work with an issue or talk about an issue uh, given the different uh, place that we'd be talking about it. So uh, let's sort of jump into it. So uh, we're going to talk about, here's sort of a little uh, index of what we're going to go through. We're going to talk about orientation issues, which has to do with obviously the sun. We're going to talk about climate issues, a little bit about landscaping. Uh, landscaping in many ways uh, is a very simplistic thing on the exam uh, with a few very specific and deep exceptions. Uh, we'll talk about uh, how the landscaping impacts uh, various other aspects like dealing with views and breezes, things like that. Uh, then we'll also kind of get into more of the kind of designed end of things. Uh, so talking about uh, surveys and easements and zoning rules and that kind of thing with parking and driving, uh, pedestrian walks, um, topography, uh, all of those kinds of topics. So we have a lot to kind of cover. We're not going to go super deep on any of it. That's not really the point of this discussion. The point of this discussion is to sort of get a, a taste of all of these things, but to think about them in the sort of different ways that they can be talked about. So let's go to our first uh, sort of main topic here. Let's talk about orientation issues. 
So as everybody knows, when we say the word orientation in the context of uh, architecture, specifically in the context of an exam, uh, you're talking about uh, sunlight. You're talking about where is the sun compared to the project. Uh, and when we're talking about multiple choice type questions, uh, specifically on the site um, planning, but also on the you know, uh, uh, PPP and some of the other ones that are, it's likely to show up, you're talking about a constantly moving sense. You're talking about the sun is always moving through the sky. And it has a sort of fluid and uh, sort of constant change aspect to it. And so your part of a question about that would always be uh, regarding seasonal change and or time of change during the day. So just as an obvious example, uh, sun is rising in the east. Uh, so if we're looking at a building and plan here, you got the sun uh, rising over in the east and the sunlight is coming at us uh, from there. Get towards the middle of the day, all right, now we're uh, kind of roughly in the middle zone and the sun is coming at our project that way. And then the end of the day, we're kind of uh, coming at it from, from the west. Uh, so it's moving along. And we're talking about different seasonal aspects. If we were saying uh, what I just drew is fairly kind of a winter version. Uh, these same spots might be uh, more like this uh, in, the, in the summer. But you get the idea that this is sort of constantly moving. Uh, this, I, this description, this way of thinking about it, where you're looking at it in plan and you have the idea of the sort of uh, uh, coordinates, um, cardinal points, uh, north, south, east, west, that kind of thing, uh, that's referred to as the solar azimuth. That's the angle uh, that is from the polar coordinates. So, uh, you know, the angle off of south, the, the, the amount of uh, difference away from south, uh, and it's constantly moving, and it's different every day through the year uh, as it goes back and forth uh, in these seasonal adjustments. Then there's solar altitude, which is, well, how high is the sun uh, off of the uh, ground plane? You know, what is that angle uh, that uh, is going to sort of be able to sort of represent uh, that, uh, the way that sunlight is coming down at our structure? So two very different uh, aspects of the same basic thing that allows us to place the sun in the sort of three dimensions. Uh, well, that's all great, and it's really important to think about that in terms of if I want to have uh, gain, solar gain in the, in the winter, but then block it uh, with a canopy or something for the summer. Like, that sense of movement is really important. Uh, but on the vignette, when you start talking about site planning vignette, there's going to be an assumption that that uh, uh, is a static idea. And the reason for that is not because they want you to think of it as static, it's just because it's too complicated on the vignette to get into any of uh, all of those very sort of dynamic and moving different aspects of these things. So uh, instead of thinking of the sun having uh, a sunrise and a middle of the day and then a sunset, on the vignette, you're really going to think about it only from the south. And the solar uh, angle, solar altitude, is going to always be at 45 degrees. So when you think about that, that means I'm always going to have that be at that 45 degrees, which means the shadow is going to be the same as that height. 
So that's going to be a one-to-one relationship. Uh, so there's, there's no reason why they would choose this number other than to make your life easier, other than to make the vignette simple. But it is a little confusing because you have this fairly dynamic version in the multiple choice and then this very static version in the vignette. So that's the kind of thing that you have to be a little careful about uh, when you start thinking about how these things uh, are being discussed. Now, it's possible in the vignette that you might get some sort of uh, thing where they say the, the restaurant wants to have a, uh, a breakfast area where you get sunlight in the morning or something like that. Like they might bring some complication into it, but I think the vast majority of the time, they're always gonna be expecting you to think of it from the south on the 45 degree angle. Uh, so why is the 45 degree angle important? Well, because there's gonna be a lot of spots where uh, there's gonna be something, maybe it's a plaza, maybe it's a garden, but there's gonna be some sort of specialty, specialty element that uh, they're gonna specifically ask you to, to say, don't, uh, you know, please put this into the sun. Uh, so if there's an existing building that's, uh, you know, 50 feet tall, uh, and you have a plaza that's supposed to be in the sun, well, it has to be at least 50 feet away in order to be able to get that sun if it's on the north side of the building. Uh, so fairly simple and straightforward. None of this is uh, rocket science. It's really just sort of talking about the sort of basic terminology that we're using uh, and then how it differs uh, in these two different, uh, different places. I'm gonna jump on to the next one. So climate, there's two really basic concepts about climate when we were talking about both the multiple uh, choice and even in the vignette. Um, the two basic aspects of this are macro and micro climates. So uh, the macro climate is talking about regional issues. So when you hear any time anybody says macro uh, in this context, they're talking regional. Um, so that means how much snow annually does this place get? How much rain do you get uh, uh, on a you know, average day in a specific month? Uh, so it's specific information that is useful to know, but it is regional and therefore not about the exact site. So there's gonna be certain things that are gonna be very important to know. For example, um, if, it's, uh, if there's uh, very little sun, uh, you know, maybe it's uh, uh, cloudy most days. Well, that would be something you would understand as a macro concept. Uh, and the macro concept would be very important if you're trying to figure out, uh, is, is it possible to put uh, solar panels there? Is it possible to uh, uh, have an outdoor cafe? And, it, you know, does it make sense? That kind of thing. Uh, but the macro idea uh, is specific uh, in this sort of generalized sense. It's not specific to the exact site. So when we start talking about specific to the exact site, we're talking about the microclimate. So one example of that would be, let's say we've got a, a bunch of buildings. Uh, so you've got all these uh, buildings over here. They're all lined up on a street. Uh, and these are relatively tall buildings. Let's say they're all, I don't know, 100, 150 feet tall. Uh, I could be in a very sunny place. I could be in 
Phoenix or Tucson or someplace like that that gets a lot of sun, but if this is my site, from a microclimate standpoint, these buildings are all gonna cast shadows on my site. So it doesn't really matter that from a macro standpoint, macroclimate standpoint, I get a lot of sun uh, because I'm not going to get sun at the site. So this is kind of like what we just talked about before in terms of the, on the vignette, the issue is that it's always gonna be from the south and it's always gonna be at that 45 degree angle. Uh, but on the multiple choice, this kind of topic would come in something like this. It would, it would be some scenario and you should understand the fact that buildings will cast shadows at different times in different directions. Uh, so uh, morning shadows would obviously be going towards the west. Um, evening shadows would obviously be going towards the east. Uh, midday shadows would be going towards the north. But uh, in any of those scenarios, in a situation like this, uh, that zone right there is gonna be in shade at pretty much all times of the day. So two different ways of thinking about it uh, definitely have impact on both multiple choice and also onto vignette type of uh, discussions. So similarly, we can have the same kind of discussion about wind. When we're talking about macro ideas of wind, uh, the idea of a windrose is uh, just something that you have a, a cardinal points and somebody has gone through the effort of saying, well, okay, uh, today the wind was coming from here uh, compared to our site there. And uh, maybe the next day the wind was coming from there and another day was coming from there and another one was coming from there and another one was coming from there. Oh, and then here one day was over there. So the wind was coming from a different direction. And then uh, we had another middle of the season later, we had maybe a bunch of wind coming from over here, right? And you can start to sort of line up. Well, there's a lot of wind coming from these locations uh, and just the occasional little bit of wind coming in these other directions. So this is a way of sort of uh, kind of scientifically, just by uh, keeping track and keeping track over years, understanding where the prevailing winds are coming from. Well, that's a huge deal, especially on big open plains, especially in uh, kind of suburban and rural settings. Uh, but when you get into urban settings, like this little sketch that we were just talking about, having the prevailing winds is actually only sort of useful. What you really start to think about is the microclimate aspect of what are the wind tunnels that get created. So if I have prevailing wind that's moving, say, this way, well, the effect on my actual site is likely to be that it's going to be channeled down through the valley that's made by these buildings, and I'm going to get eddies of wind as they uh, swirl through those open sites. Uh, so again, sort of separation between the concept of the big, big, big idea of the macro uh, versus what's really happening directly on the site. Uh, another sort of term there that's sort of worth mentioning is the idea of degree days. Um, that's just sort of a way of, of calculating how many hours of sun a particular site gets, uh, how many, uh, what, the, the, what the warmth uh, you're, you're gonna be getting from the sun uh, through that as a process. So all of these things are calculable, but then at the site, it's about uh, kind of actual investigation and research into that particular site. Uh, like for example, you just, you couldn't do a wind tunnel uh, understanding of a site without 
like building a model or or at least testing it out as in some other way. Whereas uh, from a macro standpoint, you just look it up in a book and it'll tell you what uh, what speeds you're likely to uh, come across. So uh, the same terms will get talked about differently in those two different settings. All right, let's move on to the next one. So this is, we're gonna start getting into some of the specifics of, uh, of the vignette issues. Um, when we start talking about landscaping, there's uh, essentially, for the most part, there's, it kind of breaks out into two uh, simple ways of thinking about it. One is uh, trees, and the other is really everything else. Uh, shrubs and plantings and decorative and all of that stuff. And the trees are held out as, uh, in a sort of different way, I think partly because they're so long-term and partly because they're so architectural, that they have uh, big impact. They're there for a long time. They have big impact uh, in the same way that architectural decisions do. Whereas the other elements uh, can also have big impact in terms of the aesthetics and all of that. Um, but it's, this is not an exam for landscape architects. Uh, so they just don't want to get so into the detail on the stuff that is going to be, you know, very um, in, into the minutia. So the issues about landscaping when we're not talking about trees uh, is going to be pretty big scale issues. It's going to be pretty, uh, you know, from high above. They're not going to ask you about any plant names or anything like that. Uh, they're not going to expect uh, any, any sort of detailed knowledge about it. But there are some basic ideas that you should have a very clear understanding. Uh, the first one that's worth mentioning is the idea of native versus decorative. Uh, native plantings versus decorative plantings. There's a couple of other terms that can get thrown in there as well, but native and decorative are the ones that will show up the most. And the, the th trick here, just sort of, uh, when you think of native plants, um, probably what most people think about is like prairie grasses and big, uh, uh, you know, big tall grasses and things like that. Um, and that, that certainly is true in much of the country. There's, there are very specific uh, um, grasses that look like that. And if you think about, uh, uh, you know, a, a landscape design that is uh, specifically designed to, to be using native landscaping, uh, then most people start to kind of picture that very kind of scrubby, grassy kind of look. Um, that's actually not really what the term means. What the term means is that uh, native landscaping is landscaping, uh, it's uh, plants that would conceivably already be living in that, uh, that region. And so anything, whether it's a, a beautiful uh, flower or whether it's a certain kind of shrub or whether it's uh, a, a prickly rose or whatever can all be native if they are literally native to that region. Uh, and the entire point is that the reason that you would want to use native plantings is because uh, it is already viable in that particular climate. It is already demonstrated to be viable. And therefore, you shouldn't have to add water when you plant them. You shouldn't have to uh, do anything special that's going to allow uh, that, that the plants won't need any special taken care of. 
um, because they should be able to live in that region just by themselves. So uh, we're not wasting water, we're not taking potable water and then uh, you know, throwing it out onto the plants and into the dirt. Um, that's one of those things that uh, is a sort of a basic cornerstone of uh, thinking about sustainability issues in this sort of current day uh, is that there's no reason to waste water, so let's not do that. Um, you would be surprised how that was not part of the thinking uh, until just a few years ago. Uh, if you said native plantings 15 years ago, uh, the vast majority of architects in the country wouldn't have any idea what you were talking about. Uh, it really is a, a change that has happened. Um, so I know for most of you it probably sounds like, well, duh, but actually you have to be a little careful about this because it doesn't show up on a lot of the guidebooks and things because they just, that's not how they were thinking about these things just a little while ago. So then, okay, what's decorative? Decorative isn't evil, it just means that there are certain places where uh, you have other concerns, where it's not about native, it's not about the amount of watering, uh, but it takes on a very particular and a very uh, important design aspect. Uh, so decorative is if, if effectively saying you're, use, you're consciously using something that isn't native uh, onto the site. It is not saying that you're using something that's beautiful. It's kind of a funny thing, right? They're using the word decorative, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a beautiful thing. Uh, it just means that it's not native um, and that you're doing it for a particular reason. Uh, and so you should have a handle on the kind of aspects of how that would play into a multiple choice type question. Those issues, not going to show up on any of the vignettes. Nobody's going to ask you anything specific about any of the uh, plants or any, any, any of that. That's just, it's way too detailed for the vignettes. It's just not going to show up. So let's talk about trees. So on the trees, uh, there are a couple of very basic things, which I'm sure everybody knows, uh, but the term deciduous and coniferous. Uh, the deciduous trees, for example, would be an, like an oak tree, something like that. Uh, coniferous trees would be like something like a pine tree, sort of hardwood versus softwood. Uh, amusingly, of course, uh, as everybody's probably heard before, um, there are plenty of softwoods that are actually harder than some hardwoods, and there are some hardwoods that are softer than other, you know, like it's, it's don't get overly specific about what those terms mean. Um, but these, the, these two categories will uh, sort of divide the way that you respond to a lot of the different questions that come up that have to do with landscaping. So for example, uh, if we're going to have a, uh, on either uh, the multiple choice or on the vignette, anything that's talking about view control. So let's say we have a, a loading dock and we don't want the restaurant uh, patrons to be looking at the loading dock and we're going to do something about landscaping. Well clearly I'm not going to use a deciduous tree uh, that has this sort of large uh, full canopy but I can see straight through if I'm standing over uh, in the restaurant. Uh, I would use for view control, uh, this is probably the worst uh, coniferous drawing ever done, but uh, you get the idea. I would use this uh, sort of pine tree type of, uh, of coniferous tree because that same view is going to get blocked down where the views are important. Uh, 
is it true that all deciduous trees are going to have a big clear space before the canopy starts? No, that's not always true, but it is true in terms of the exam. It's how we talk about it on the exam. Uh, is it always true that all coniferous trees will be uh, solid way down close to the, uh, to the grade? No, it's not true. Is it true on the exam? Yes, it's true on the exam. So this is how we talk about trees on the exam in order to give a sort of clarity to the difference uh, of what the, what the point of using these, um, these landscaping elements is. So a similar way of thinking about it, sort of view is one example, but another example would be sort of wind control. Uh, the deciduous tree will actually impact wind. Uh, it, it'll slow and create turbulence and create different pressures, and a bunch of those ideas, but it won't do it when you really want it. Uh, when the winter is at hand and the leaves have all dropped off, the branches will make a difference in terms of how the wind is going, but they're, they're not gonna, it's not going to have that solid feeling that the coniferous trees will. So when it comes to wind, anytime anybody mentions wind, uh, you're talking about a coniferous tree. You have two choices usually on the vignettes, and you should definitely choose correctly. If it's about view control, if it's about wind, it's the coniferous trees. If it's about providing shade, then it's the deciduous tree. So think about shade, uh, the coniferous tree. I have that sun angle coming from way up there. Uh, that coniferous tree isn't really giving, mu giving us much uh, shade, but this one I'm getting a big area where people can be, uh, Picnic tables could be, your building could be, uh, there's lots of different ways that this uh, deciduous tree can be very helpful from a shade standpoint. So talking about wind, you're talking about view uh, control, then you're talking about coniferous trees, we're talking about shade, you're talking about deciduous trees. Uh, you, uh, it, the computer will see you as doing it wrong if you try using a coniferous tree for shade. Uh, so just one of those ways that it gets simplified out in this particular world. Now, one of the reasons I say that gets simplified is, well, let's say you're comparing a 35-foot uh, tall, uh, you know, on a maple tree or something, and I'm comparing that to a, uh, you know, 70-foot tall pine tree. Well, clearly that 70-foot tall pine tree is going to cast a, a pretty long shadow. So these things actually are much, much more complicated out in real life but for the exam, they're gonna be simplified. So keep it in mind that they're simplified and use that to your advantage. A couple of other terms that uh, come to mind you should be uh, comfortable with. One is the idea of the drip line. So in a drip line, uh, the concept here is that if I have uh, this tree and it has this big canopy and the canopy reaches out to certain distance, the assumption is that the root ball is also reaching out to effectively the same distance. So as the water would drip off that uh, edge of the canopy, that in sort of presumably a sort of circular plan uh, on the site plan is going to be the area that you don't want to disturb because I don't want to mess, I wouldn't want to dig into this ground to put in say a, a foundation or something and therefore damage that, um, that root ball and therefore kill the tree. 
so by thinking of this line as the important line, these, this very far out, uh, outside most uh, point, what that's saying is no buildings, no roadways, nothing goes uh, into that distance. Now, if you're on the vignette and it's very close and you just clip a little bit, I don't think you're going to fail because of that, but uh, that's something that you really want to try to not have happen. You want to try to keep roads, buildings, and things away from the drip line because the drip line is the root line. Uh, there's also a couple of important concepts that will show up, uh, the idea of formal relationships versus informal relationships. Uh, we'll talk about it a couple spots here, but um, uh, I, I think this is fairly self-explanatory, but it is important to say uh, when you read something like formal or informal on the exam, take it very seriously. It's, uh, it is not a sense that they're going to say, uh, like, they're not going to be loose about a term like that. If something says formal, that means the trees line up. If it says informal, that means there's no pattern. Uh, it's not going to be halfway in between. It's not going to be some of the trees line up. Um, again, for simplicity's sake, they go out of their way to, uh, to make these things uh, clear, uh, which is actually kind of funny because, of course, they're not clear at all because they never explain themselves. But uh, the idea is that they make, make these things very clear. So if it says formal, that means all your trees line up. Uh, if it says uh, informal, that means there's some other uh, grouping that, that is not decipherable to, uh, um, to, a, to a geometry. Um, and then a kind of interesting other relationship which will show up in both uh, the multiple choice and potentially, though not always, on the uh, vignette is the idea of security. And so what does this mean? Well, the simple way, the, the way that it might show up in terms of the vignette is very much about the kind of view control. So we talked about how somebody in the restaurant uh, may not want to be able to see the uh, loading dock, and so using the coniferous trees to block that view. Well, if you flip that idea and you say, Okay, instead of it being a loading dock, maybe this is uh, um, you know, the sidewalk or something at the street point. And by having a bunch of coniferous trees there, I've effectively made it so that people on the sidewalk can't see somebody walking on the site. And so I'm losing that sense of security of people being able to watch out for each other, uh, to be able to see that there's a danger coming, or to be able to uh, just kind of uh, some, you know, somebody's not going to want to uh, do something that would be uh, you know, damaging because they can be seen up by people on the street. Uh, so when you hear security, that is typically going to mean sight lines. And therefore, it's not going to be about deciduous trees. It's likely to be, if we're talking about landscaping, it's likely to be about coniferous trees because it's about sight lines, keeping them open. Uh, when you get to other topics, security can show up in all kinds of different ways. So, for example, uh, you know, I, I forget there's a there's a specific term that people I think it's called the the rosebush concept or or something like that, which is uh, one of the main ways that you can uh, deter uh, burglaries is by having uh, rose bushes or something else that that has uh, thorns uh, underneath all the windows on the ground floor. Of your house, for example. 
And the concept there is if you're a burglar and you go up and you're like, I got to battle through a bunch of thorns, or I could just go next door, uh, they're going to go next door. Like, who wants to battle a bunch of thorns, right? So there are other ways to think about security, and there are other examples of ways that, that people will talk about them in the multiple choice, but nothing that sort of tricky or nuanced would show up on the vignette. It will only be this very simple version. All right. Maybe before we go on, uh, Mike, let's see. Uh, we have a question here. Will they intentionally place trees on the vignette so that there is a limited arrangement of building, parking, roads that's possible? Yeah, on the site, that's a really good question. On the site planning vignette, so first of all, site planning vignette, um, there'll be a whole bunch of trees and there'll be some rule somewhere uh, that will say, they could use different numbers, but uh, usually it's uh, six trees. You, you're, you can't, you can't uh, bulldoze more than six trees. Uh, so always aim for fewer than that because you may find at the last possible second you forgot something and you need to take out another tree. Um, so you're gonna be taking some trees away but then you'll be adding other trees into other locations. So when you first look at, this, at the site plan, it will probably be almost impossible to just place the buildings and the parking and everything in the site. Uh, you would almost always have to remove at least one tree or something. So you kind of, you, one of the things you want to practice when you're practicing the vignettes, this particular vignette, is you want to practice that being able to look at that and see, all right, if I got rid of this one, that opens up a big large area, that's probably where, or if I get rid of this one, but I don't wanna get rid of a grouping of three or a grouping of four or something, because that's gonna be too many all at once and it's bound to be one or two more in other locations I'm gonna have to get rid of and I'm gonna go over that limit. So uh, is there only one way to do it? No, um, there's gonna be a few ways to answer any one of these um, vignettes. There's going to be two probably easy-ish and the kind of the ones that they expect, the two, maybe three, uh, and they'll all be sort of variants off of each other. And then there'll be a couple of outliers that you can figure out how to kind of fit them in. Uh, but there's not that many ways to do any of them. The buildings are pretty big. Uh, and when you're doing it, you know, it'll always be something like, I've got a great big site, uh, and in that site I have a... Uh, a let's say uh, a creek that runs through and that creek has a uh, offset that uh, doesn't allow me to uh, build up close to it. Um, so I'm gonna have something that I have to deal with and then there's gonna be a certain road and there's gonna be some other stuff and I have to have an entrance way and then I'm gonna put in a big building. Um, you know, so these things are big things. So there's not gonna be that many choices. I gotta put a parking lot in and then I gotta get a driveway to the to the road with the parking lot. So the, there won't be that many choices, but generally as you go through it, you'll find that, all right, there's a bunch of trees over here, uh, there's a bunch of stuff up in here, and then there's like a tree there. You're like, all right, clearly I'm getting rid of that tree, so I have plenty of space to make this thing work. Um, so you're always looking for uh, what's, the, what's the fast way that I can open up a bunch of space but with only losing a couple of the, of the trees in that process. Uh, and then as you start doing the driveways and things like that, you'll probably lose another tree or two. 
and you're trying to keep it to maybe three, maybe four trees. Uh, and then there's going to be there's some rule about, well, we're trying to block the wind from, say, here. So once we've gone through, well, now we're going to add a bunch of uh, coniferous trees uh, all right there. And if I'm really doing it, I'm going to do them staggered if it says it's really important. Uh, and that way the wind really can't get through. Uh, it would go right on by because uh, uh, we've just made this wind block. So you're, you're, this is, like I said, it's not rocket science. Don't overthink it. Uh, just find a way to say, all right, how do I open up space, get rid of a couple trees? How do I use the trees to do whatever the three or four things they're going to ask me to do? Uh, it won't be super complicated, uh, but if it says to do something, you've got to do it. Uh, it, if it says to block the, the wind, don't put one tree. Uh, if it says to uh, provide shade, put at least a couple of trees. Um, you don't want to go too nuts. If it says to block the wind, don't put 150 trees in. You know, you're talking maybe five, six, eight trees, something like that. Don't go any more than that. Okay, great. We have uh, quite a few other questions, but mm -hmm. I think maybe we'll, uh, we'll keep going here and then we'll regroup. Okay. Um, on these remaining questions. Okay, so quick, uh, uh, some of the terms that we should uh, run through uh, when we get to kind of the technical stuff. We started to talk about them on the on that site planning vignette, so let's let's just kind of use uh, use some of these terms correctly. Uh, one of them is you should have a very clear understanding of the difference between a survey, a plot plan, and a site plan. Uh, so a survey is a legal description. So uh, that is a very specific, uh, uh, has a very specific legal concept. It fits into the contracts. It fits into uh, the ways that uh, the different entities are, are working with each other. Um, and it has a, a particular kind of meaning. Uh, and it, a survey can only be done by a surveyor, which is uh, a professional. So it's somebody who has their own stamp. Uh, and the reason that that's done so like a like because it sort of seems like well you could get anybody to just go out and measure and do a bunch of stuff right well no there's actually uh, very specific legal ramifications there's a lot of research that goes into it you have to uh, uh, sort of understand uh, the the way that uh, not just how the land where the borders are and how the land form is but how that fits into a overall legal context uh, if you actually read through your surveys, you'll be kind of amazed how much interesting information is on them. It's all kind of buried in there, so it's a little hard to know unless you really kind of decipher it. But um, the surveys, as I said, are legal and have a very particular uh, meaning, and they're from a particular person. They're from a particular professional. A plot plan is also a legal description, but it's not from a surveyor. So it doesn't carry the same weight. It's more of a legal description that's for kind of description, descriptive purposes. Uh, so, you know, you might do a plot plan. Maybe somebody says, "Well, what's on the site now?" And you you kind of draw out, "Well, this is what the what the uh, site actually looks like right now." Well, that's not a surveyor. That's not a professional whose job it is to do a legal description but it looks kind of like a survey. So you have to call it something, but you can't call it a survey, right? So that's a plot plan. A site plan, well, that's what you do, right? That's what architects do. Site plans uh, have their own 
uh, way of uh, representing information. So surveys are going to be done in uh, usually in decimal feet, and at least in the United States, uh, site plans are going to be done in feet and inches. Just as an example, right? There's different ways that we start to think about these things and how they uh, this, the the tool by which they get used. Site plans are going to be about uh, a proposal, usually. Plot plans are going to be about what's there, and surveys are going to be about what's there. Uh, you can't do a survey for something that's going to show up in the future. That doesn't make any sense. It has to be something they can survey, because they're legally saying, this thing is here, this fence is here, this building is here, this driveway is here. So, okay, that's just to say, don't get confused by the terms. If you have a multiple choice type of uh, situation going on, and they're talking about it, and they mention one, they say site plan, that's you. They say survey, that's somebody else. And kind of specifically, if they say survey, that's somebody else who's not even hired by you. That's somebody who's hired by the owner. So obviously, when we're talking about these issues, we're, we talk a lot about zoning. We talk about site planning. There's going to be lots of zoning issues. Uh, some of the terms that uh, are likely to show up are things like uh, zoning setbacks. So I might have a a side yard setback or a rear yard setback or a front yard setback. And that's a way that the zoning allows for different approaches to, um, uh, to be able to create different types of districts uh, so that there are places where we want to have a lot of density, then we're going to have very small, if maybe even zero, on the setbacks. There are going to be places where we actually want to have less density and those setbacks can be much larger. Uh, there's nothing sacred, there's no reason why a setback is uh, meaningful other than setting up that idea of the difference in density. And you do that in order to provide uh, different choice for people, in order to help increase uh, the um, likely uh, ability of a commercial district to work. Uh, if I have a very spread out commercial district, it may not work as well as if it's very dense. Uh, making uh, certain kinds of places where I really want to have, uh, for example, um, public transportation work. Um, I would want to have more density. If I'm not so worried about public transportation, then I could have less density. So the zoning is all about those kinds of issues. Telling you you can build on certain parts and not build on other parts. A couple things to say about that, though. So we talk about something like a uh, zoning setback. Zoning setback will say something like, okay, there's a side yard setback of, say, 10 feet in a residential district. Does that mean you can't build anything in that 10 feet? Um, it probably means you can't build any primary structure in that 10 feet. It may well be that you can put a driveway. It may well be that you can even put a garage. Maybe that you could put a gazebo. There's all sorts of things that often can be in the setbacks. So you have to be very careful about what the terminology is and what the definition is. Uh, another one that will show up a lot is the idea of the building limit line. And that's a term that doesn't really show up in the world that much. Uh, mostly you're talking about setbacks, but occasionally you'll talk about building limit lines. Um, and it's similar to a setback, but it'll have its own set of rules. On the vignette, there'll be a bunch of rules about what can fall uh, beyond the building limit line and what can't. Uh, obviously, any building element can't fall beyond the building limit line, so I can't put a building there. Um, they're not going to give you a vignette 
that requires you to, have, to understand um, accessory buildings or things like that. They might give you a multiple choice question that, that requires you to understand that, but they're not going to give you a vignette that would, that would force that. Uh, so there are plenty of times when uh, things can happen beyond those lines, but you have to be very careful about what is allowed to happen. On the vignettes, it'll say. On the uh, question, multiple choice type question, you have to kind of read between the lines of what they're actually talking about. One uh, other thing that's kind of related to this is the idea of the easement. Uh, an easement is something that looks an awful lot like zoning, uh, but it isn't zoning. It's not a setback. It's not anything that has to do with the um, uh, no municipality has said, uh, okay, here's an easement going through. An easement is a contractual relationship between a landowner and somebody else. It might be two neighbors who have a contractual relationship that says, uh, I don't have a place for a driveway, you have extra space, so I'm gonna make a deal, I'll pay you, uh, you still owe the land, but um, uh, there's this ability to, to use that space. It has uh, contractual meaning, but it is not part of the zoning department. So you're likely to get both of these things on both the multiple choice and on the vignette, uh, and you have to make sure you follow the individual uh, requirements, the restrictions that go with each of those. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Okay, we're gonna talk uh, parking for a moment. A um, Couple terms that are useful to know. Um, uh, one is the parking, typically, if, you're, if somebody says, uh, hey, we've got a 10-car parking lot, uh, you'd say, all right, well, that's somewhere between uh, 3,000 and 4,000 square feet. And I know that because I can use a rule of thumb, somewhere between 300 square feet per car and 400 square feet per car. Uh, when we're talking about parking layouts, uh, the parking lot that, unless there's some very specific reason for you to, to do something different, you will almost always be talking about uh, a 19 by nine, possibly a 19 by eight and a half, possibly a 19 by eight, it depends on the use. If it's uh, cars where aren't going in and out very much, it might be as thin as eight. If it's a place like a, I don't know, a grocery store or Home Depot or something, where cars are going in and out constantly, it might be as wide as 10. Um, but it's gonna be a, a parking space, let's just call it nine feet wide by say 19 feet long, it's supposed to be nine. Uh, and then I've got a drive aisle that's, let's say 24 feet wide, and then I've got a parking space again that's 19 feet and the nine feet wide. Uh, so if I add those up, that's gonna be 19 plus 24 plus 19, it's gonna be 62 feet right there. Uh, so my parking lot is always going to be essentially somewhere between 60 and 64 feet wide. Uh, and then the length of it is going to be however many cars I have divided by 2 times 9 or whichever of those numbers I was talking about. So in a flash, you get a little question, you got something, you can figure out how big this thing is right away. Uh, and there's no reason not to put it into actual dimensions as fast as you can. On the vignette, you're going to want to go in and sketch mode and draw it out. In other situations, you want to be able to picture it. Um, but that kind of 
uh, ability to do that very quickly is very important. This is always going to assume um, that this is a two-way traffic. Uh, if it's a single-way traffic, you can actually start getting into uh, angled parking. But I'll tell you, man, angled parking gets very complicated very fast. Uh, and I kind of, other than as a multiple choice question, I kind of doubt that they would ever get into that in any other way uh, on the exam, on the vignette especially. So we have a little parking lot and a building with a building entrance uh, sort of sketched out here. Uh, yeah, take a look at that. What do you think? Uh, what do you like? What do you not like? Well, I'll tell you a couple of things uh, about this. First of all, uh, if, if this was something that I was designing, uh, first of all, I would want to make sure uh, that I had a backup space so that a car, say, in this location, when it was backing up in order to be able to pull out, uh, could do so without uh, bumping into the curb or having any problem. But even more than that, uh, what I really don't like, and from a, the vignette standpoint, you, you absolutely would want to try to make happen, is I don't like the fact that it's a dead end. Uh, so I don't like the fact that I drive in and then I have to drive back out the same aisle. So you're always going to be trying to find a way to, to make it be a through process. Uh, if it's a small one like this, instead of doing what I just sketched there, maybe, uh, maybe I do something uh, along the lines where I have, uh, have it go out to a different street so I have this through ability. Uh, and that allows people to uh, not get uh, um, uh, stuck and so they don't try to do something tricky. Part of the whole thing with parking is you're always trying to make it sort of obvious and simple. Uh, the reason that we uh, always use the same basic uh, drive aisles is you don't want to give a bunch of extra space for people to start parking in the middle. Uh, you want to keep it exactly what everybody expects and make it simple and straightforward. Well, same thing that goes with the, the through. If I can make it as simple as possible, it's going to be much more likely for it to, to work uh, and for people to not have accidents. Uh, okay, what's, a, what's another big problem for the way this thing is drawn? Well, I'll tell you one failing thing on, for both uh, as a multiple choice, but specifically on the, on the vignette, uh, is the fact that the distance from this driveway to this street is way too close. Uh, you can imagine you're driving, uh, driving a car down the street. Uh, as you go along, maybe there's a little confusion. Maybe it's dusk. It's not easy to see. Uh, and you accidentally turn into the driveway instead of turning uh, on the street. Uh, and, oh gosh, what am I going to do? Well, I then back up out into the street in order to go to the correct one. Well, that's incredibly dangerous. Uh, the confusion between a driveway and a street is something that they are very hot about on this exam. Uh, and it's absolutely something that would show up. Uh, it'll show up somewhere written out in some way. And it's because of that basic issue. Um, it's also cars coming around the corner wouldn't have time to turn quickly and so they would stop and back up and then go. So there's lots of reasons why having that close element there uh, is problematic. So here's one of those moments you start thinking about this and you're like, well, wait a minute, I've seen parking lots and corners like this before. Uh, you know, he's, he's saying that, uh, that that's no good. What's going on there? Well, people got to do what they got to do. They only own the land they own. So there'll be all kinds of places where you actually do something like this. A gas station, for example, is often has uh, uh, driveways right close to uh, the corners of things. And that's 
you know, they have to do it because that's what that's the only space they can do it, you will always be in a situation where you have more choices. Uh, so watch out for that. Another thing here is what about uh, the handicap spaces? I have them way down here at the end, but the door is way over here. So that seems sort of problematic, but maybe not. What if uh, I have a curb around this whole edge? Maybe there's even a height difference here and I can actually make this zone be the ramp up in order to get to the correct height. At that point, then this is actually a perfectly good relationship for that handicap space. This space over here that I have to go across a drive aisle in order to get to the building, that space will never work. Don't ever do that. Uh, you don't want to do it in real life and you definitely don't want to do it in the vignette. Uh, a couple other sort of quick uh, concepts. Uh, one is the idea of loading. Um, if I have a, a situation like this where I go through that in order to get to say a loading dock back here, so every truck is driving through in order to get to there and then driving back through, that would be a problem as well. You always try to separate loading from, uh, from the parking. You may not separate them at where the driveway actually connects to the street in order to reduce how many uh, curb cuts you have, uh, but pretty quickly you want them to, to get separated. Uh, in the old days, you used to have to think quite a bit about turning radiuses for trucks. These days, they don't really care about it. It's just too complicated for the vignette to get into it. So uh, it's kind of interesting to think about it. Might possibly show up on the, on the multiple choice, but absolutely will not be part of the uh, uh, parking or uh, site planning uh, vignette. Uh, one quick thing to say, uh, anytime I have a driveway coming up to a street, I also have to make sure that I'm leaving open areas, what's called the site triangle, so that people have a chance to see the oncoming traffic before they pull into it. Faster streets, I need a bigger site triangle. Slower streets, I can go with a smaller site triangle. Okay, let's jump in. Let's do some, uh, some quick topography. So there's, uh, as probably most of you know, there's a whole vignette on topography, uh, and uh, that vignette uh, has essentially two things it's gonna ask you to do. It's possible they might ask you to do three things, um, but usually it's just two. And the two that typically it will say is it'll say something like, all right, we're, here we have a, a topographic plan, and we want you to make a flat area to be able to put a structure on. Well, first thing to say is there is no such thing as flat when you're talking about outside, uh, unless it's a concrete slab. Um, everything else is sloping to some degree. So when they say flat uh, or flattish or a pad, what they're referring to is something that's very low slope that's gonna make it easy to then build on. Uh, so first thing I would wanna know is where is high and where is low. So I would have to look at the numbers. When you look at something like this, you actually don't know which way is up and which way is down until you start seeing the numbers. So let's assume that, uh, um, that up to the top is up for now. Let's say that's uh, uh, 95 and this is 94 and 93, etc. So first thing you notice is that what I've done here is immediately is I've uh, called it out as a one foot interval. Um, one foot is very typical, especially on this uh, on the various vignettes, um, but it's possible that it could be a two-foot interval. 
If you're talking about maps and other sort of complicated things, it could be a five foot or 10 foot or 20 foot interval. If you're talking about something very, very small, uh, it could be a one millimeter interval. Uh, the concept still works uh, no matter what you're doing. But so the interval, that's definitely part of what's going on. You wanna make sure you understand what the interval is and you, that it's continuous in which direction everything is going. Uh, clearly, the, when I have the contour lines closer together, that's a steeper slope. When I have them farther apart from each other, that's a less steep slope. Uh, one of the ways that they're gonna talk about slope is by using a term, uh, a percentage term. So if something says that there's a 20% slope maximum, then if it said, say, 20% slope maximum, then you have to think about that as 20 feet vertical compared to 100 feet horizontal. So 20 feet vertical compared to 100 feet horizontal. Obviously, it's the same as 2 to 10 or 1 to 5, right? But by using the percentage, it's a way of talking about slope. My least favorite way of talking about slope, but that's another story. So the two things that they're going to ask you to do is going to place a, a pad, which again is not a concrete pad. When they use the term pad in this context, it's going to be just a sort of flattish area that somebody could build on in the future. Uh, so where would I do it? Well, I could do it where it's very steep, but that seems silly. I'm probably going to try to choose an area that's already uh, relatively flat. And then the second thing I'm going to want to do is I'm going to want to stop uh, the water from just draining down, sheet draining down uh, this, uh, this hill uh, into my structure, whatever that structure is. Uh, so I'm going to have to deal with that in some way, and I'm almost always going to do that with a swale. A uh, swale is essentially a ditch, a berm is essentially a mound. Uh, so in order to sort of do this simply, I'm actually going to break them apart. So I'm going to do uh, the first one, I'm going to say, let's make the flat area. So, all right, well, one possibility is that uh, I do something like I take this contour and maybe I cut it back. So I have a bunch of soil here that I've just removed by doing that. Uh, and, you know, maybe I take that soil and I add it out over there. So I've taken the cut and I've put it in and used it as my fill. Cut and fill, balancing that, something that absolutely will show up on the multiple choice, absolutely will not show up in terms of a, an idea on the vignette. Uh, you're, you're still gonna do cutting and filling, but nobody cares about whether any of it balances, so just make it easy on yourself. So what I've effectively done is I made this great big area here that is now reasonably flat. It's still sloping, it's still a one foot slope all the way across, but it's now a much bigger dimension, so it's comparatively flat. So that's sort of a nice, simple, big zone. So I can imagine that I could put a structure there relatively easily. And all I had to do was make this contour line push back and push out this second one here. Okay, I'm gonna jump to the next screen and just do the same thing again, but start talking about the uh, swales so we can see how that might work as well. All right, so there's our little structure. I'm gonna come back and remove those, uh, those two things. But let's talk about how we might put a swale in. So what I wanna stop is that water from just sheet draining right down the process here, down that hill. So I'm gonna do something like, put a ditch that does something like that. 
Now, I'm drawing it very swoopy. And the reason I'm drawing it very swoopy is because that's generally how you do it out in the world. Uh, and you do that because you're not using straight lines because people want things to sort of look natural and fit into a landscape. On the vignette, and we'll look at a quick example of it, on the vignette, uh, it'll be very uh, pointy and straight lines. That's just because of the nature of the program, not the nature of making a swale. So I have these swoopy lines. What I've done is I'm digging out, I'm cutting into this uh, ground plane in order to have a place for the water to go. And maybe I might do it also on the other side. So I'm digging across, and maybe I've got a little bit there. So any of that water is going to come down and find this path, this faster path, around my structure. So now I'm going to start combining these two together. And then I can just kind of let it stop down here. So any of this water is going to try to come sheet drain down here. It's going to get picked up in the swale and go right around my structure. And I've gotten rid of this, these two portions right here. And I've gotten rid of these a little bit. So I'm cutting in, I'm cutting in, and then cutting way in back here, and then adding out a bit along there. That's all it's really going to expect you to be able to do. Uh, the other possibilities, you might have to mess with something for, say, uh, a walkway or something like that. And we start doing a walkway, uh, you just want to make sure that you don't have a situation where the uh, contour lines are going straight across that walkway. Because if they do, that water is going to drain straight down and it's going to become um, a runway for the water exactly where you don't want that to happen. So what you would need to do is make sure that the water has some ability to get off. So maybe it does something like that, right? Where it'll drain uh, away from, it's got a cross drain, or maybe it's crowned in such a way like a road does, so that it's going to push the water out to either side. So that's possibly they might get you into something like that, but these other two, the swale and the, the making the pad, that's absolutely something that's going to be done. Uh, so, okay, I think that hopefully makes some sense. Let's uh, take a one last look. This is the example from the vignette. Uh, and you can see what I mean by these pointy lines. And these are pointy. This is where somebody has made a swale. Uh, and the reason it looks so pointy is because it has these little buttons on it. And that button probably was right about there, and it got dragged to there. And therefore, that swale is now doing that. Right? And this swale is doing that. Right? Pretty simple idea, but confuses people all the time. Uh, you want to just practice it a little bit and get used to it, but once you do it a few times, it's pretty straightforward. We have lots of other information on Black Spectacles and, and uh, some of the other um, uh, webinars, so you can find uh, more information about it, but it's definitely something you want to practice a bit. Uh, once you've done it a few times, it's uh, old hat, uh, but the first couple times you do it, it feels a little alien. You've got to make sure you're not accidentally making mounds instead of cutting in, that kind of thing. Okay, want to get back to a couple of those questions? <clears throat> yeah, so uh, we have quite a, quite a few uh, here. Maybe, uh, maybe we'll start with uh, Namrata, who asked, uh, 
if you could discuss the ADA codes pertaining to site planning um, and how you should sort of tackle studying for that. Well, so the, the big thing about um, the ADA codes in terms of site planning is going to be ramps um, because the ramps are going to be the main uh, when you get into the building itself, you get into all sorts of things about, uh, you know, audio and visual alarms, and you get into wayfinding issues and a whole bunch of other stuff that are all ADA related. But in terms of the site, it's almost always about ramps. Key thing to remember about a ramp is, you know, everybody knows the 1 to 12, uh, that uh, 1 inch uh, vertical is 12 inches horizontal, so every inch is 1 foot horizontal. A um, couple things to remember about that is, uh, I can't go more than 30 inches vertical without having a, a place to rest. So that is something that might show up. It seems very, very, very unlikely it would show up on the vignette, um, but it could easily show up in uh, a uh, multiple choice type question. Uh, the other thing to, to make sure you have a, a good handle on is just, you know, beforehand, use the percentage uh, way of thinking about slope. Get used to that as a way of thinking about it because on site planning, they'll talk about uh, slope as percent, uh, whereas other places will talk about it as a ratio. Uh, so you want to make sure that you're in that realm. If I am lower slope than 1 to 20, that's very, very meaningful because that means it's just slope. It no longer becomes an accessible slope. So I don't have to have railings and curbs and all of that. If I have a slope that is steeper than 1 to 12, well, that's fine. You can totally have a slope, a ramp that's steeper than 1 to 12. You just can't have it be an accessible ramp. Uh, so you just have to be careful about the terminology and how it gets used. You know, loading docks, for example, have slopes steeper than that all the time. Uh, so the key thing is just having a really good understanding of those issues and then uh, kind of thinking about how uh, the relationship between handicapped parking and uh, a building entrance. So clearly it does not make sense to have a building entrance that's totally accessible if I have to go over a curb to get to my car. So the accessible path has to be all the way from the handicapped parking space up to the door. Uh, equally, this is um, a little harder to say specifically because it uh, gets a little complicated in terms of the use of the building and who's required to meet certain ADA uh, rules, but in general, you always try to have people uh, in wheelchairs or in other kinds of mobility issues uh, also using the same front door. You don't want to give secondary entrances. You don't want to make second-class citizens. Uh, so uh, it's the usual way of thinking about it is that the handicapped parking space is the closest to the door. But the closest to the door could mean that it's actually uh, the closest accessible route to the door, which can actually get a lot more complicated and farther away. So those are the kind of the main issues. I would just make sure you have a handle on those numbers, uh, the idea of how the ramps work in relationship uh, to front doors and the, in relationship to handicapped parking spaces. Uh, you're drawing in curbs in order to control water often in parking, but you want to be very careful about uh, how those curbs relate to somebody getting in and out of their uh, car or, or an accessible van, something like that, and there's some way for them to get from that parking area into the, the main play. So that's going to be the main thing that's going to show up for ADA issues. Okay, a couple more going back to the vignette here. Um, so um, let's see here. Dave is asking on the site grading vignette, should you avoid moving the contour lines 
that are within the drip line of a grouping of trees that they say do not disturb. I think that's an easy one, right? Yeah, that's a, you that's absolutely a no. do not. Um, so one, one little trick, I mean, I'll just jump back for a quick sec here. One little trick, which uh, we get into a lot more detail in other, other locations, you can actually add buttons on, on these contours when you hit, uh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move something. And you want to you add them uh, in locations that are right outside of grouping of trees, for example, so that when you do move one of these things, it doesn't change the contour where the tree is. It's, if you just moved it a little bit, it's, you're not going to probably kill the tree. I mean, people, you know, add a little soil or cut away a little soil uh, all the time, but you might. And clearly they don't, you know, they want you to understand that you don't want to kill the trees. Uh, on the vignette, uh, that's, excuse me, on the site grading vignette, you don't want to kill any trees. On the site planning vignette, as I said, you have a few trees, five, six, they'll give you a number, I think it's usually six. Uh, that you're allowed to take away in order to fit the buildings in. But on this one, absolutely not. Don't kill any of the trees. Don't let any of the contour lines uh, change at the trees or, for example, in these uh, what are referred to as site features, uh, these big rock zones. You can't change anything over there. So you, again, you just add those buttons in so that when you did change, when you did move something, it didn't change those parts. Um, along the similar lines, Betsy asks, uh, can the plaza that's in the vignette cross a drip line? Is there a threshold of, of tolerance if something overlaps? I think that's probably a good yeah, question there. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Uh, to be perfectly blunt about it, uh, there, there really is no way to know for sure. Um, I would just try not to do it, but if you found yourself just slightly clipping the drip line uh, and it, you think everything else is doing fine, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, so I know that's kind of vague and I'm sorry, but uh, there's just no way to really know. In general, uh, I would not, I would try to keep everything out uh, of the drip lines. Kind of similar, this is like, uh, you know, uh, clearly a driveway can, can cross through a, uh, to get from the street to the, um, past the building limit line, right? So you can put a driveway in that space, but it doesn't mean you can put a driveway going uh, parallel with it in that space. Like if you can cross it, but you can't, you can't do other things. So again, even though you could do it, I would try very hard not to do it and keep it as simple and straightforward as you can, because you just don't know exactly how they're going to look at it from the computer that's grading you on it. Okay, and um, we're about ten minutes over, so I'm going to take one more here. Thank you, everybody, for uh, for asking all these questions. Uh, it's really awesome. Um, George is asking, will photometrics be part? Uh, of the vignette uh, for parking lots or buildings? Uh, not on the vignette. Um, under 5.0 maybe, but uh, certainly um, uh, not uh, in 4.0 in the, in the regular vignettes that we have now. Um, there'll be the, the sort of calculations, the, the, the kind of um, level of detail that you have to go to is really pretty uh, uh, kind of rough justice. Um, you're really talking about how many feet away is the building, how, uh, you know, is the parking lot believable in terms of its size? And trust me, that's plenty. Um, the site planning is actually pretty tough. Uh, it's not that it's complicated. It's not that it's hard to do. It's just, it's weirdly worded. There's a lot of odd elements. You have, you know, trees and, and plazas and you're trying to figure out like, well, what is, I have a, you know, is it a restaurant or is it a court? Uh, you know, is it a, 
a shopping mall, like you're trying to sort of get a handle on all the different parts. So it's pretty complicated just as a base idea. And so the, the gist of the specifics are actually very simple and they've been specifically simplified in order to not make it difficult to do. All right. Good deal. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, and thanks to all of you who've tuned in uh, and who have uh, submitted your questions today. Yeah, great questions, everybody. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so if you'd like to attend our next ARE Live broadcast, where we'll be discussing the transition from uh, ARE 4 to ARE 5, uh, visit blackspectacles.com. Um, where you can register um, on blackspectacles.com slash podcast, uh, where you can register to attend. I think it's uh, gonna be a really interesting one, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, um, we're actually going to DC uh, in about two weeks to get the full download from NCARB, so uh, we're gonna be, f our heads are gonna fresh, be uh, full of, uh, yeah, full of m more information than we ever wanted to have in our brains about this. Um, but in any case, during that uh, webinar, uh, just like today, you'll have a chance to ask questions and share your answers with Mike. Um, you know, for live feedback during the broadcast. To learn more about our AIA ARE prep curriculum, I assume you know about it. Um, it's been you know, over 50 hours of uh, uh, instruction that's available on the web, uh, taught by Mike Newman here. You can find that on blackspectacles.com. And for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE, and if you're already an AIA member, you can use coupon code 216SPDPC15 to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your AIA ARE prep membership. And then finally, please hop over to iTunes right now and rate our podcast to let us know what you think and share any suggestions you may have. Uh, I promise we'll read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for listening.